2: Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more. And plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
0: Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports
3: in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we discussed sports and the American woman. Today, we'll be comparing the American experience
0: for two of the country's greatest athletes of all time, Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis. Both men were the best at what they did, and both men were black. But how they were viewed in the eyes of white America in the prime of their competitive days on the international stage was extremely different. To explain in full, here's Matt.
3: The prize fighter Joe Lewis is the main focus of our lecture today. And I'm going to start with a brief story in which he's a character, but I'm not sure if this story is true. The story has been told many times as if it were true. For example, Martin Luther King Jr. liked to tell this story. But I have my doubts that the story actually happened. But it perfectly introduces what I want to talk about today, so I'm going with it, but you've been warned. The story goes like this. In the 1930s, one of the southern states adopted a new method of execution. Poison gas replaced hanging. And the first time poison gas was used, a microphone was placed inside the gas chamber so scientists could hear the words of the dying prisoner. They they were curious, how will he react? The first prisoner to be executed in this way was a young black man. The pellet dropped into the container and the gas curled upward and the young black man started breathing heavy, gasping. And then the scientists listening in on the execution, they heard him say over and over, save me, Joe Lewis, save me, Joe Lewis, save me, Joe Lewis. Whether this really happened or not, the the story speaks to how black Americans thought of Joe Lewis as a figure of liberation, as a sort of black superman. Well, today I want to explore why this black boxer, Joe Lewis, was so important to black Americans. If that's a true story, why did that condemned black man call for Joe Lewis in his darkest hour? But I also want to explore why Joe Lewis became immensely significant for white Americans as well. Joe Lewis is probably the first black athlete that more white Americans rooted for rather than against. And we will explore why. I think to better appreciate the meaning and the impact of, of Joe Lewis and other Black athletes from this era, it would be helpful to briefly explore the racial climate of the era. Two weeks ago, we were discussing the rise of Jim Crow segregation in sports, and then we discussed all the violence that Black Americans endured after Jack Johnson's victory over Jim Jeffries. That was in 1910. Well, By 1919, the mob violence against Black Americans had escalated. In 1919, there were big race riots in Omaha, Nebraska, Washington, D.C., East St. Louis. The biggest was in Chicago. The Chicago race riot began when a group of white boys they threw rocks at and they killed a young Black boy who had drifted into the white section of a Lake Michigan beach. This sparked days of racial violence, and 23 Black Chicagoans were killed. This riot was a response to the Great Migration, when millions of Black Southerners, they fled the Jim Crow South, and they moved north into the cities, into places like Harlem, Chicago, as we will see places like Detroit and Cleveland. And some white Americans responded to their arrival with violence, They did not want to ride on streetcars with African-Americans. They did not want to work next to black Americans. They did not want to live in the same neighborhoods as black Americans. So they lashed out. It's in the context of this great migration and in the context of this heightened climate of, of violent racism that I want to place the stories of two of the great athletes in American history. Jesse Owens, a track star. And Joe Lewis, a boxer. Though, as I said, Joe Lewis will be our main focus. Both Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis were part of this great migration. They moved from the South to the North, and they rose to prominence in this era of racial violence. But Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis mark a change in the history of the African American athlete. Owens and Lewis are the first two black athletes to gain national media attention after Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was like a comet. You know, he burst onto the scene and then he faded away or, or he was chased away. He was imprisoned. After Jack Johnson, black athletes were ignored by the mainstream press until Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis. And Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis were such extraordinary athletes that they were celebrated even by white Americans, you know, even living in this era of intense racial hostility. And that's because their athletic achievements occurred at a time of extreme international tensions. So here is where the stories of racism in sport and patriotism in sport, here's where those stories collide. All right, let's talk about Jesse Owens first. James Cleveland Owens was born in 1913 in rural Alabama. And when he was nine, the family moved to North, to Cleveland, which was that's just coincidental that that was his last name. So Jesse Owens and his family, they lived the Great Migration. He was given the name Jesse by a teacher who did not understand his accent when he said his family called him by his initials, J.C. She heard Jesse. Jesse Owens attended Ohio State University. And let me point this out. This can only happen outside of the South. Attending a flagship public university is not an option for black Americans in the South at this time. The universities of Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and North Carolina, they were all off-limits to Black students at this time. So Jesse Owens, he attends Ohio State, and it was here that he accomplished maybe his greatest athletic achievement. He did this in May of 1935 at the Big Ten Championship track meet in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In the span of 45 minutes, Jesse Owens set world records in the 100-yard dash, the long jump, the 220-yard dash, and the 220-yard hurdles. So four world records in less than an hour. Not bad. Owens was one of those once-in-a-lifetime athletes. And the question was... Would he be allowed to take his talents to the 1936 Olympic Games, which were scheduled for Berlin, Germany? As the 1936 Olympic Games neared, there was a debate in the United States over whether or not the U.S. should send a team. Should we send a team to Nazi Germany? In 1933, Adolf Hitler took power in Germany. And once in power, his regime began passing laws that severely discriminated against German Jews. Jews were losing political rights. Their their property was being seized. Added to this, though the Nazis denied it, it was pretty clear that German Jewish athletes were not going to be able to compete for Germany. The, The German Olympic team was going to bar them. In fact, German Olympic officials they contacted the United States and requested that the U.S. leave its black athletes at home. As they put it, they did not want the, the sacred grandeur of the Olympics to be soiled by the appearance of black athletes. Now, the International Olympic Committee made it very clear that Germany could not host the Olympics and keep athletes from other nations from competing. And so black athletes were invited. In the end, the United States did send a team to Berlin, and Black Americans were part of this team. 18 Black American athletes. Among them was a guy named Mack Robinson. He was a member of the U.S. track team. We will talk about Mack Robinson's younger brother, Jackie, next time. And also on the team was the great Jesse Owens. The 1936 Berlin Olympics, they were a, a spectacle. You know, it was, it was the Nazis who came up with the idea of the grand opening ceremony. It was the Nazis that invented the idea of the Olympic torch relay, something that we still do. The 1936 Olympics were used by the Nazis to display German nationalism and, and Nazi imperialism. Hitler, he wanted these games to demonstrate that the German people were the master race. But at these games, the idea of Aryan superiority, that idea was dramatically refuted by the black athletes from the United States, and especially by Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals. And in the United States, both black and white Americans celebrated what Owens had done. Owens was celebrated as a symbol of national strength. Almost all Americans reveled in Jesse Owens. They reveled in how his accomplishments embarrassed Hitler and his theories about German supremacy. So here is where patriotism seems to have outranked racial prejudice. Now, all that said, though Owens may have been a national hero in the summer of 1936... When he returned to the United States, he was reminded that he was still a black man in America. He was unable to translate his success in sport to success off the field. We talked about how Babe Ruth was able to sell everything, you know, everything from oatmeal to cigarettes. But no such opportunities were out there for Jesse Owens. In fact, listen to this. To make a living... Owens took part in athletic spectacles in which he ran races against horses. A race between a black man and a horse. It was an unglorious end to a brilliant athletic career. And it's also my introduction to Joe Lewis.
0: After the break, Joe Lewis wears the mask.
1: Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week.
1: Now through May 14th, get
2: $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club.
3: So let's get to the main event. Let's talk about Joe Lewis. I think it's possible that within the African-American community, Joe Lewis was the single most beloved person of the 20th century. You know, Martin Luther King had his detractors in the black community, those who thought he was either too militant or or, or not militant enough. Other prize fighters like Jack Johnson and Muhammad Ali, they certainly had their detractors. I mean, there were many black men and women who thought that they were too audacious. Even Jackie Robinson is going to have his detractors. But Joe Lewis was universally loved by Black Americans. And that's because Joe Lewis came along in this time of intense racism and violence. And in a silent but but powerful way, he did battle with the idea of white supremacy. The great writer, Richard Wright, he put Joe Lewis's impact like this. Day by day, since their alleged emancipation, Negroes have watched a picture of themselves being painted as lazy, stupid, and diseased. Joe Lewis is the living refutation of the hatred spewed forth daily over radios, in newspapers, in movies, and in books about their lives. So because Black Americans were systematically excluded from the opportunity to demonstrate their worth and their abilities as a group, the success of Joe Lewis, his, his singular successes, they energized the black community. They were a source of pride for all black Americans. And that's how the theory goes. When Joe Lewis won, all black Americans won. So let's explore the significance of Joe Lewis to black America, his his, his symbolism. And like I said, let's try to figure out what he meant to white Americans as well. Like Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis was born in the South, actually also in Alabama in 1914. He was the seventh of eight children born into a sharecropping family. And he and his family, they joined the Great Migration and they moved north to Detroit where the auto factories were. And this is where Joe Lewis worked as a teenager. He developed and chiseled his muscles pushing 200 pound uh, truck bodies on the assembly lines. He also took boxing lessons, and he made a name for himself as a boxer in Detroit in the Midwest. He rose through the ranks. But now we're faced with that same old problem. Joe Lewis was black. And we've talked about this with regard to boxing. you know. And after Jack Johnson, many white Americans did not want to give another black man a chance to fight for the heavyweight title. Ever. But Lewis is eventually going to get that chance. And he's going to get it for two reasons. First, his timing was good. Boxing needed a fresh face. After the reign of Jack Dempsey, five different men held the title over the next 10 years, and none of them were great. None of them were exciting. So boxing was desperate for a star. But even more important, Joe Lewis will eventually get to fight for the title because Joe Lewis Wore the mask. All right, what what does that mean? Wearing the mask. Well, this might be a bad idea, um, but I'm going to read from a poem. Let me introduce you to a poem by a black poet named Paul Dunbar. It's titled "We Wear the Mask," and it goes like this: We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. In this poem, Paul Dunbar is illuminating a coping strategy, a a survival mechanism for Black Americans. In order to survive in white America, Dunbar is telling us that Black Americans need to wear a mask. They need to hide their anger, hide their frustration and their rage. Black Americans need to wear a mask that will make them presentable and acceptable to white Americans. Otherwise, there might be repercussions severe repercussions let me put this even more bluntly dunbar is saying that on the surface black americans need to be what white americans want them to be they need to play the role of the so-called in quotes good negro i mean that's the term people used back then now you know who didn't wear the mask jack johnson Jack Johnson did not wear the mask. He did, and he said what he wanted, and he went to prison for it. But Joe Lewis is going to wear the mask. He's going to present an image to white Americans that they were comfortable with. Joe Lewis was managed by a white promoter named Mike Jacobs. And Mike Jacobs concocted a series of rules that Joe Lewis had to follow. Rules that he had to obey both inside and outside of the ring. And these were rules that were put in place to convince the public specifically that Joe Lewis was not another Jack Johnson. Inside the ring, Joe Lewis was never to ridicule his opponents. He was never to gloat or stand over them after knocking them down. In fact, he was always supposed to go check on them after he knocked them out. Outside of the ring, he was supposed to be a model black citizen. He was supposed to be, to use kind of a loaded term, respectable. He was never to be seen entering a bar or a saloon alone, for example. And most of all, he was never, ever to be photographed with white women. After all, that had been Jack Johnson's greatest transgression. And Joe Lewis played by these rules. He literally played by the rules of white America. And as he progressed through the heavyweight ranks, the white press, well, they, they fell in love with this quiet, unassuming, well-behaved young man, this, this anti-Jack Johnson. Joe Lewis gained the respect and the admiration of the nation's white sports writers and sports fans. But his race, right, his blackness, was always at the forefront. White sports writers, they heaped a slew of nicknames on Joe Lewis. He was the Black Menace, the Dark Destroyer the Tan Tornado, the Golden Puma, and the Brown Bomber. And it was this last name, the Brown Bomber, that stuck. So Joe Lewis was a great, respected fighter, yes. But for many Americans, he was a Black fighter, first and foremost. But then came his fights against the German Max Schmeling. Their first fight took place in June of 1936, and it was not a title fight. Neither of them were the heavyweight champion yet. Lewis was working his way toward the championship, and this was expected to be just another fight along the way. Max Schmeling was the champion of Europe. He was good, but Hitler's Nazi party, they had little faith in Schmeling. They did not really support Schmeling. They did not think he would beat Joe Lewis. In fact, the Nazis were annoyed that Max Schmeling was, as they saw it, lowering himself to fight a black man. But then Max Schmeling shocked everyone and won the fight. Schmeling battered Joe Lewis; He he knocked out Joe Lewis in the 12th round. It's considered one of the great upsets in boxing history. And suddenly, the Nazi propaganda machine, they hailed Max Schmeling as a hero. Here was proof, they argued that the Aryan race was dominant and the black race inferior. Oh, Joe Lewis was, was crushed. Black Americans were crushed. The four gold medals won by Jesse Owens two months after this bout, well, that eased the pain a little bit. But Joe Lewis was the great black hope, not Jesse Owens. Joe Lewis recommitted himself. He he trained religiously. He fought frequently. He won seven fights in eight months. It was an absolutely furious pace. And then he got the chance to fight for the title. As I told you, neither Lewis nor Schmeling had been the champ when they fought in 1936. The champion was a fairly unimpressive American fighter named Jimmy Braddock, a guy known as the Cinderella Man. And the thought was that whoever got to fight Braddock first, Schmelling or Lewis, he would win the fight and and, and win the title. Well, since Schmelling beat Lewis, it probably should have been Schmelling who got the chance to fight Jimmy Braddock first. But Lewis's promoters feared that if Schmelling won the title, he would take the title to Germany, where Hitler would use it for political purposes. He would never give Joe Lewis a chance. So Joe Lewis's promoters, they bribed Jimmy Braddock to fight Lewis. To convince Braddock to fight Lewis, they promised Braddock all of Joe Lewis's share of the fight. Braddock would get 100% of the money from their fight. Jimmy Braddock thought about it and said, eh, not enough. So they offered on top of that to give Jimmy Braddock 10% of the proceeds from all of Joe Lewis's fights for the next 10 years. This was too sweet of a deal for Jimmy Braddock to pass up. I mean, win or lose, he makes money. So Joe Lewis and Jimmy Braddock, they fought in June of 1937 in Chicago. For the first time in over two decades, a black man was fighting for the heavyweight title. And Joe Lewis won with an eighth round knockout, the first black man since Jack Johnson to be heavyweight champion. Black Americans rejoiced, but Joe Lewis said, wait a minute, I'm not the real champion until I beat Max Schmelling. So the rematch against Schmeling was set for June of 1938 in Yankee Stadium. And by the summer of 1938, Many of Adolf Hitler's intentions, they were clear. His racist policies against Jews were clear, though the exterminations had yet to begin. His militarism and expansionism were clear. Three months earlier, the Nazi war machine had taken control of Austria. And it was in this context of heightened international tensions that something very interesting happened. In the eyes of many white Americans, this black American fighter, the brown bomber, he became one of them. He became 100% American. Just as the Nazis said that Schmeling represented them, white Americans said that Joe Lewis represented America. He represented the United States and democracy. And we've been talking about how tribal boxing was in the United States. Well, now almost the entire nation is united behind this Black fighter. I described the 1910 Jack Johnson-Jim Jeffries fight as the most significant sporting event in American history. I think this is the most anticipated sporting event in American history. And if you had tickets for the fight at Yankee Stadium, you better have been in your seat when it started because it was over in two minutes and four seconds. Joe Lewis came out of his corner and overwhelmed Max Schmelling. Joe Lewis threw 41 punches, solidly landing 31. Max Schmelling only threw two punches before being knocked down twice. And after the second knockdown, his corner men, they jumped into the ring and they stopped the fight. 60 million Americans, half the nation's population, they were tuned in and listening on the radio. And Americans celebrated like they had just won a war. I mean, especially black Americans. This was absolute jubilation. Save me, Joe Lewis. I always like what Roy Wilkins of the NAACP said, though the bout was actually just over two minutes. He called the fight... The shortest, sweetest minute of the 1930s. I told you how things went for Jesse Owens after the 1936 Olympics. So let's end by talking how things went for Joe Lewis after this 1938 fight. When World War II came in 1941, Joe Lewis volunteered for the United States Army. He put on boxing exhibitions and he raised the morale of American troops. He made speeches encouraging Black Americans to enlist. You know, he played the role of the patriotic American. But let me point out a couple of things. The U.S. Army was racially segregated during World War II. So Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world, the American hero, he was part of a segregated unit. And during World War II, the race riots started up again. And coincidentally, it was Joe Lewis's hometown of Detroit that saw the most significant of these riots. Black Americans were moving into Detroit to work in the factories, and tensions were high as whites in the city, they resented blacks moving into their city and taking jobs. These tensions erupted in the Detroit race riot of 1943 when 25 black Americans were killed. As for Lewis, he defended his title three times during the war, and he patriotically signed his checks over to the American government, every penny. But he was still taxed on this money, and World War II tax rates were very high, 80% in some instances. To pay these taxes, Joe Lewis had to fight well after he should have retired. In 1950, he fought and lost the title to Ezard Charles. Um, Charles was a black fighter. And I think it's worth mentioning that many black boxing fans, they never forgave Charles for defeating their hero, Joe Lewis. But still in debt, Joe Lewis kept fighting. Finally, in October of 1951, when he was 37 years old, He was destroyed in the ring by the new champion, a white fighter named Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano openly wept after the fight that Joe Lewis had been his idol. So like we did last time with Babe Didrikson, let's take stock of everything we just discussed. Um, I'm going to fuse these two stories of Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and ask the question, just how significant was that moment in Berlin with Jesse Owens and that moment in 1938 when Joe Lewis defeated Max Schmeling? Were these moments of advancement for black Americans or, or a better, more simple way to put it, did they matter? I think there are two ways, at, at least, of looking at it. Now, on the one hand, these were very significant moments because they, they bolstered Black America and because they led some white Americans to root for and identify with a Black athlete. So we might say that it, it was Americans' passion for success in international sport. This was helping to broaden the notion of who an American was. But on the other hand, a second way of looking at it No more how psychologically satisfying these moments may have been. It was just sports. And success in sports was not a solution to the problems of discrimination and segregation. These victories were merely symbolic. Nothing more. Nothing changed. Segregation did not end. You know, Joe Lewis was segregated. The race riots and the attacks against Black Americans continued.
0: Next time on The Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, Jackie Robinson.
1: Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at TrinitySchool.org. That's TrinitySchool.org. Live
2: Nation presents
1: Concert Week.
2: Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Sarah McLaughlin.